1943, as the Second World War raged, the leaders of the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain had a problem. They needed to meet. Not through telegram wires or couriers. No, the big three allied leaders needed to meet in person. Man to man to man. Winning the war depended on it. But it would not be easy. Prime Minister Winston Churchill ruled an island under siege. He often drank his morning whiskey to the sound of air raid sirens. General Secretary Joseph Stalin was reluctant to leave the Soviet Union under any circumstances. He hated air travel, worried that if he died in a plane crash, the entire Soviet project would die with him. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt oversaw the American war machine taking its first lumbering steps. The aging statesman was starting to campaign for his fourth presidential term, but was wheelchair-bound and sick. His physical state could be best described as actively dying. But finally, the Allied leaders agreed on a meeting place, an ancient capital nestled in the cradle of civilization, Tehran, Iran. The Big Three's respective bodyguards, diplomats, and intelligence officers made arrangements for transport. Now only misfired torpedoes, bugged embassies, and Nazi paratroopers stood in their way. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is Episode 71, Operation Eureka. By 1943, the Second World War was at a turning point. On the Eastern Front, the Wehrmacht and the Red Army traded blows in a series of brutal maneuvers that left millions dead in mass graves across the Eurasian steppe. The Red Army finally halted the enemy advance at the cataclysmic Battle of Stalingrad. But the Germans had already raised over 10,000 villages in the Russian countryside. The Soviet generals planned their counteroffensive. In the Pacific, the American naval fleet had effectively challenged Japanese supremacy in the Pacific after the decisive victory at the Battle of Midway, the first naval battle in history where both navies were never actually in sight of each other. The United States admirals now prepared for an intense island-hopping campaign. In the Mediterranean, British and American offensives successfully expelled the Axis forces from North Africa, and now they advanced on the fortified Italian peninsula. What they needed now was communication between the great Allied powers. Couriers and telegraphs would no longer do. A face-to-face meeting was tantamount. Churchill, an avid traveler, had already met both FDR and Stalin in their respective capitals. FDR proposed a meeting in the Bering Sea between the borders of Alaska and the USSR, but Stalin declined. Proposals for Casablanca, Cairo, Baghdad fell through as well. But finally, in late 1943, all three leaders agreed to meet in Tehran, the capital of Iran. Winston Churchill, whose favorite activity was naming military operations, dubbed the conference Operation Eureka. On November 11, 1943, after a wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery, President Roosevelt was quietly whisked away to Quantico, Virginia. For the next month, his whereabouts would remain top secret. Only the base commander at Quantico knew the president was coming. Shortly after arriving, Roosevelt boarded the USS Potomac, his presidential yacht. He was accompanied by select members of his staff, Secret Service agents, and his 33-year-old son, Elliot. The Potomac took the secret group to the battleship USS Iowa, anchored in the Chesapeake Bay. As he boarded, there was no pageantry, no ceremonies, no hail to the chief. Instead, 
a tall Secret Service agent quietly carried the paraplegic FDR aboard the USS Iowa. The agent had his own unique orders. Should the Iowa be sunk by a snarling wolf pack of German U-boats, he was to carry the president into the ocean and do whatever it took to keep the president's head above water until help arrived. The Secret Service agent, chosen for the task because he was the most capable swimmer in the service detail, mentally prepared himself for that dreaded contingency. FDR and his secret posse of five-star generals and admirals dined together before sneaking off to their quarters for the evening. Before FDR went to bed, he asked the Admiral of the Iowa if they could delay their departure by just a few hours. He knew of the old mariner's superstition. It was bad luck to leave port on a Friday. The Admiral, one of the few men who even knew Roosevelt was aboard the ship, obliged the Commander-in-Chief and ordered the Iowa to leave after midnight on Saturday morning. But it turned out it was bad luck to leave on a Saturday, too. German submarines had sunk 2,500 Allied ships, military and civilian, over the past few years. Now, cargo vessels had naval escorts, and the Royal Canadian Air Force watched the skies above. But the voyage was still incredibly dangerous. The American armada of ships escorting the President across the Atlantic was imposing, but subtle enough to seem somewhat routine. At first, the trip went on without a hitch. FTR spent most of the time in his cabin, talking strategy and preparing for the conference with his generals by day, and watching his favorite Mickey Mouse cartoons at night. There had been reports of Nazi U-boats elsewhere in the North Atlantic, but none seemed brave enough to approach them. Dozens of ships were part of the escort formation. One of them was a smaller destroyer called the William D. Porter. The actual William D. Porter was a Commodore in the Union Navy during the Civil War, he died unceremoniously of a heart attack in the middle of the conflict. The ship that bore his name would be just as unlucky. The William D. Porter, the crew called her the Willie D., was new in so many ways. The ship itself had been assembled in a new shipyard that had sprung up in the industrial flurry after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. Its crew was even newer, staffed with greenhorns who were all mailmen and line cooks and school teachers just months before. The Willie D. had run into, well, created its own problems. As they were departing, the ship's anchor, which had not been pulled in correctly, scraped the side of another destroyer, tearing an opening in its hull and putting it out of commission for months. A few days later, an armed depth charge somehow fell overboard and had to be recovered. The next day, a problem in the boiler room caused the ship to fall out of formation. The crew's inexperience was showing. By November 14, 1943, the escort was nearing the entrance to the Mediterranean, the Strait of Gibraltar. The president asked the admiral if he could see his navy in action. The admiral said they were, in fact, overdue for a combat exercise and ordered the fleet to prepare for an air defense drill. Weather balloons were released into the air and the entire fleet opened fire on the simulated access aircraft. FDR sat on a lower deck in his wheelchair, accompanied by a few Secret Service agents with a clear view of the display of firepower. The battleship's cannons roared, machine gun emplacements sprayed streams of lead, anti-aircraft batteries shot flak that blossomed near the weather balloons. FDR smiled as if it were the 4th of July. Back on the Willie D, the torpedo officer went through the motions of launching torpedoes with the new crew. The torpedoes were all disarmed closed by a safety pin which allowed the crew to train without releasing actual live torpedoes. He chose the nearest target, which happened to be the USS Iowa, and went through the protocols. 
He set the code phrase, put the keys in the ignition, and ordered Torpedo 1 to launch. He did the same for the second torpedo, and then for the third, and then... Everyone in the torpedo bay froze. No, 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 no. It was supposed to be disarmed. This couldn't be happening. Frantic calls rang up to the captain of the Willie D, informing him that they had accidentally fired a live torpedo at their flagship, the USS Iowa, which, unbeknownst to them, had the sitting president of the United States sitting in his wheelchair on the deck facing them. The captain of the Willie D had to alert the Iowa, but they had strict orders to maintain total radio silence. So the task fell to Willie D's young signal officer, who began flashing a coded message with his set of mirrors. The crew of the Iowa wasn't expecting a mirror message from any destroyer, but nevertheless began interpreting the message. Torpedo in the water, heading away from the Iowa. Huh. Another signal soon followed. Disregard last message, William D. Porter taking evasive action. With the torpedo still heading straight for the Iowa, the captain of the Willie D. threw the radio silence out the window and sent a message to the flagship, stating that a live torpedo was about to hit them. The crew of the Iowa abandoned its air defense drills immediately and sent for the president. The helmsman turned the vessel as fast as he was able, trying to make the enormous battleship as small of a target as possible. When word got to FDR and his secret service agents, they knew they had to get the president to the heavily armored safe room that might survive an explosion. But it was several flights of stairs away. The agents quickly picked up FDR in his wheelchair, but they knew it was too late. FDR ordered them to set him down. He wheeled himself closer to the railing. He had never seen a torpedo in the water. This might be his last chance. Meanwhile, the USS Iowa struggled to rotate in the waves of the Atlantic. The propeller churned up whitewater behind them. The whole ship groaned with the strain. FDR, a man who regularly practiced crawling from his bed out the door in case of a fire, who now had no use of his legs whatsoever, sat in his wheelchair, helpless. The Secret Service agents drew their pistols and scanned the water for the coming torpedo. Suddenly, a plume of water shot up from just behind the Iowa. The torpedo detonated right behind the vessel, and the whitewater kicked up by the flagship's propeller. Every single member of the Willie D was arrested in an attempt to find the Nazi spy in their ranks. But it turned out the real culprit was just good old-fashioned gross incompetence. Someone had failed to remove a torpedo's primer cap. Despite the close call, the naval escort continued its mission. An allied sweep for submarines found one lurking near the Strait of Gibraltar. The U-boat was hunted down and sunk. The Iowa then snuck into the Mediterranean in the dead of night. While his American counterpart was avoiding German U-boats and friendly fire, Prime Minister Winston Churchill began his own voyage to the Middle East. The British Bulldog trudged across the gangplank to the battle cruiser HMS Renown. Churchill was a voracious traveler who had already met both Stalin and Roosevelt independently, but his poor diet, alcoholism, and stress of running a nation during the largest war in history all contributed to a sudden bout of illness. Once aboard the Renown, he ran a fever that horrified his physician. But with the aid of his daughter who accompanied him, his health returned as the ship entered the Mediterranean. 
As evidence of his improved health, Churchill ordered the preparation of a lifeboat equipped with a machine gun so he could fight it out with the Nazis should the renown be sunk. Churchill met with several Mediterranean and Asian allies once in Cairo, Egypt. The most prominent was the leader of the Republic of China, desperately trying to hold out against Imperial Japanese forces, Chiang Kai-shek. Casualties had been steep, with 800,000 Chinese civilians perishing when the nationalist government purposefully flooded the Yellow River to stop the Japanese advance. Churchill and Roosevelt both met with Chiang to coordinate their plans in the Pacific Theater. Stalin, however, refused to meet with the nationalist leader due to his opposition to the Chinese communists. The civil war in China between the two factions was still on hold. Both sides, the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party, formed an unsteady united front against imperial Japanese aggression. Stalin supported the communists, so elected to stay out of the meeting with the nationalist leader. While FDR, Churchill, and Chiang met in Cairo, Joseph Stalin remained in his heavily guarded compound in Moscow, which, frustratingly for the other allies, he rarely left throughout the war. Tehran was fairly close to the USSR's borders, but still a perilous journey by road or rail. The Germans maintained a foothold in Crimea, which meant every route to Iran was within range of German planes. Despite Stalin's grave fear of flying, his trusted advisors insisted it was the safest and fastest method of transportation. Stalin traveled by train to the city of Baku in Azerbaijan. It was there, nearly 40 years before, that he and a band of radical communists robbed an imperial bank to fund the exploits of the upstart Bolsheviks before the revolution, a lifetime ago. Two planes waited for the cadre of Soviet leaders on the runway. The Soviet Union's highest-ranking marshal of aviation would be flying Stalin and the generals, while the agents of Stalin's secret police would fly on the second plane. However, Stalin, in a last-ditch bout of paranoia against assassination, declared that he would be flying in the other plane. The USSR's head of aviation was annoyed at the apparent snub, but this was the premier's first ever flight, and he would do it on his terms. Stalin's paranoia was entirely justified. The German high command had known about the meeting of the Big Three in Tehran for months. Adolf Hitler approved an ambitious commando mission called Operation Long Jump, a plan to assassinate all three Allied leaders in one fell swoop. Iran was well within flying distance from the access-controlled Balkans, and paratroopers could be dropped into the desert to rendezvous with contacts from Germany's expansive spy network. In early October, a few dozen turbaned Nazi commandos descended through the desert night. They quickly collected their parachutes and headed towards a remote villa where they could garner supplies. With bribes of gold bars, they requisitioned several camels and loaded them up with weapons, ammunition, explosives, and radio equipment. The disguised commandos then began their journey to Tehran. In Egypt, Roosevelt and Churchill boarded a plane headed for Iran. They flew low to avoid the effects of high altitude on the aging Allied leaders. During the flight, Churchill wrote in his personal journal, quote, On Saturday, we passed over Bethlehem and Jerusalem, everything very barren. Then hundreds of miles of Arabian desert, then a green ribbon of Baghdad on the Tigris, and another green ribbon along the Euphrates, in a vast plain with Tehran and the snowy peaks to the north, unquote. 
As the Allied leaders converged on Tehran, their respective militaries and intelligence agencies swept the city for Nazis. The Iranian capital swarmed with Allied troops. Soviet secret police questioned servants and swept their embassies with a fine-toothed comb. British intelligence officers monitored all traffic in and out of the city. 30,000 U.S. Army troops drilled in an encampment a stone's throw away from the city walls. Having landed at Tehran's airport, Roosevelt and his son rode in a jeep in a convoy of armored cars and troop transports. The escort arrived at the American embassy in the late afternoon. Churchill and the British brass departed separately. Their cavalcade of British generals got held up in the throngs of onlookers near the city center. British cavalry stood alongside the street on horseback. They were supposed to serve as a sort of honor guard welcoming the prime minister, but to Churchill and his security, they might as well have been signposts for any potential assassins along the route. At several points, Churchill found himself sitting helplessly in an open cab car, smiling and waving to the hundreds of Tehran residents, praying a Nazi assassin wasn't among them. The British and Soviet embassies were located in the main thoroughfare close to the city center. The American embassy was more out of the way, squatting unceremoniously on the outskirts of the city. Both Churchill and Stalin offered the Americans residencies at one of their more luxurious embassies, but FDR, seeking to maintain more independence from each of the other powers, declined, saying he didn't mind the drive. FDR prepared for the meeting with his usual idealism. He wanted to remain open and trusting with Stalin, even expressing a hope to one of his aides that he could potentially convert the Soviet premier to Christianity. Churchill and Stalin, on the other hand, were more apprehensive. Their country's death tolls were enormous, and they couldn't afford to be optimistic with the stakes this high. Their first meeting would be held tomorrow. That night around midnight, Soviet emissaries arrived at the American and British embassies with urgent news. Six Nazi radio operators had been apprehended in Tehran by Soviet secret police. Using interpreters and every Soviet torture technique in the book, they extracted as much information as they could about something the Germans referred to as Operation Long Jump. A 19-year-old Soviet spy named Givork Vartanian had infiltrated a branch of the Nazi spy network. He was posing as a young Wehrmacht recruit named Paul Siebert in Nazi-occupied Ukraine. Late one night, he got an SS officer, Ulrich von Ortel, drunk with heavy pours of gin. That night, the Nazi officer spilled his guts and revealed the plan to assassinate the Allied leaders. Vartanian abandoned his alias as Paul Siebert, crossed back to the Soviet lines, and revealed the plans to Soviet leadership. Soon thereafter, the entire Nazi spy operation in Eastern Europe crumbled. More than 400 Nazi spies were rounded up and executed over the next few months. For his work revealing the extent of German spycraft and the details of Operation Long Jump, the young Vartanian was later awarded the title Hero of the Soviet Union, the highest honor bestowed upon a Soviet citizen. With these revelations, Soviet intelligence went to work revealing the extent to which Nazi subversives had infiltrated the city. Operatives kicked in doors. Soldiers made late-night arrests. They believed the threat was effectively contained. Despite the risks, the security forces of the Big Three reluctantly agreed to let the conference go on. November 28, 1943. Day one of the Tehran Conference. The next morning, the Americans gave in and decided to relocate to the Soviet embassy, a less isolated and more defensible position 
against a possible attack by secret Nazi commandos. An imposing convoy of jeeps and armored cars cut through the city. U.S. military police lined the four-mile route, and Iranian onlookers gathered on the streets to get a glimpse at the U.S. president. However, Roosevelt was not in the convoy. He was snuck into an inconspicuous car filled with Secret Service agents and sped through the side streets of Tehran, eventually arriving through a back alley of the Soviet embassy. Once FDR got settled, Joseph Stalin came to see him. In the hallway outside of Roosevelt's room, the two world leaders met for the first time. The liver-spotted FDR stood from his wheelchair and shook the Soviet dictator's hand. Through their interpreters, the pair of leaders discussed their journeys to Tehran and the recent events of the war. Roosevelt congratulated Stalin on the Soviet victory at Stalingrad and expressed condolences for the immense casualties among the ranks of the Red Army. For the next hour, Stalin and Roosevelt talked about the intricacies of the war. Roosevelt ensured two million pairs of American boots on the ground in Europe within the year. Stalin and FDR disparaged the Vichy French government and agreed that France should be stripped of all colonial possessions and collaborators banned from running for public office ever again. FDR, perhaps in an act of diplomatic flattery, then mentioned the growing power of India and implied it could use a bottom-up revolution similar to what happened in the Soviet Union. Stalin wholeheartedly agreed, but replied that it would only be possible with a whole lot of violence. The Soviet premier then said that, regardless, India should not be brought up around Churchill. It was now apparent that Britain was a junior partner to the superpowers of the USSR and the United States. The first official session of the Eureka Conference was held in the American section of the Soviet embassy. The decor was posh and elegant, with Persian tapestries hanging from the walls around a sturdy table. The table was round, like the Arthurian myth, as to avoid any leaders gaining a symbolic advantage over the others. Churchill arrived, clearly fighting off a cold or hangover or both. He greeted the other two with prepared pleasantries, then found his place at the table. With the Americans playing host, Roosevelt spoke first, welcoming the other two heads of state. He then spoke about his hope that each of their nations could cooperate as a family and create international partnerships that could last for generations. Stalin spoke next. While the strongman seemed impatient and overbearing while dealing with his comrades in Moscow, he now used a softer, more pleasant tone. He peppered his introduction with phrases like, in my opinion, and perhaps, and maintained a cordial smile throughout. Churchill's introduction was, well, Churchillian. Eloquent, spirited, and exceptionally long-winded. The interpreters and stenographers struggled to keep up with the whirlwind of British aphorisms, metaphors, and witticisms. After the introductions, Roosevelt led the other two leaders into the weeds. They discussed the Pacific Theater, logistics, and the need for a second front against Germany. During discussions about a second front in Europe, the leaders hit their first major snag. Churchill insisted that the second front should push north through the Mediterranean. Stalin, on the other hand, argued for an invasion across the English Channel in Northern Europe, closer to the Eastern Front. Neither party backed down. Sensing the tension in the air, Roosevelt stated that the specifics would have to wait until tomorrow. Stalin then provided an in-depth status report about the Eastern Front. The generals and advisors did the best they could to follow the complexities of the military maneuvers shown. When Stalin mentioned the casualties for both sides, the room filled with a solemn silence. The death toll was staggering. 
everyone in the room knew it, felt the weight of it. The decisions made here would decide the fate of hundreds of millions of people. The dinner bell broke the tension. The evening meal was quintessentially American. Steak and potatoes prepared by Filipino Joe Esperancia, an immigrant from the Philippines who had served as FDR's personal chef for years. Roosevelt insisted on mixing the cocktails himself. He poured everyone some of the sweetest martinis they had ever had. Discussions over dinner included possible surrender terms for the Axis powers. Debates raged over conditional or unconditional surrender, but nothing became too heated as everyone was still getting acquainted with one another. By dessert, sweat beaded on FDR's forehead, and he regretfully decided to retire for the night. The security teams feared poison from an assassination attempt, but the president's personal physician quickly assured the others that it was only indigestion. After a little more discussion over dessert, everyone decided to follow Roosevelt's lead and headed to bed early. November 29th, 1943. Day 2 of the Tehran Conference. FDR security detail did a sweep of the Soviet embassy before settling in the day prior. They found it clear of any listening devices. They did not look hard enough. Hidden within screw heads and flower pots, between panels and within light switches, were dozens of listening devices. The Soviet secret police had bugged the entire embassy, with every conversation in every room recorded and transcribed. Early the next morning, Stalin himself read every word the Americans had said. After reading the transcript, Stalin was stunned by the bizarre frankness by which the Americans spoke, but found no ill will or hidden agenda towards the Soviets. Churchill was frustrated by the Americans staying in the Russian embassy. Stalin and Roosevelt could be scheming together without him. When everyone convened in the morning for more discussions, Churchill hoped FDR and Stalin weren't too chummy, he later stated in his memoirs, quote, There I sat, with the great Russian bear on one side of me, paws outstretched. To the other side, the great American buffalo. And between the two sat a poor little English donkey, who was the only one who knew the right way home. Unquote. The morning meeting in the Soviet embassy involved diving into possibilities for an amphibious landing in Europe. They called it Operation Overlord. The specifics were left to the generals, field marshals, and admirals in attendance. The big three took a back seat. The military leaders spoke at length about taking Rome and the importance of drawing away Wehrmacht divisions from the Eastern Front. They consulted military charts and coordinated countless maneuvers that would have been all but impossible to arrange via telegraph. The Soviet military commanders argued for arming communist partisans in Eastern Europe to combat the Nazi occupiers. The other Allied generals, despite their vast political differences, agreed wholeheartedly. In addition, the Soviet leaders showed how successful human wave attacks could be used in taking ground back from the Nazis. These tactics terrified the British and American leadership, who were unsure if the morale of their own troops would hold up with that many casualties. Over the course of strategizing, the cultural and strategic differences of their armies became apparent. The Red Army could endure significant casualties and was incredibly capable in guerrilla warfare. The Americans, on the other hand, relied on heavy ordnance and air support and trusted in technology above all. They were hesitant to start a battle they weren't 100% sure they could win. As the generals and military advisors continued to talk tactics over maps of Europe, the Big Three once again met for dinner, with the Soviets playing host this time. 
Among the blazing red Soviet decor, Winston Churchill, clad in his blue Royal Air Commodore's uniform, approached Joseph Stalin with a gift from the British people. From a ruby inlaid sheath, Churchill presented a magnificent longsword. As he handed the ceremonial weapon over, he said it was a gift from King George to honor the decisive victory at Stalingrad. Etched into the steel blade in Russian was, quote, to the steel-hearted citizens of Stalingrad, the gift of King George VI, in token of homage of the British people, unquote. After admiring the blade, Stalin kissed the sheath, then handed the weapon to Roosevelt, who was seated nearby to hide his ailment. FDR drew the blade and held it aloft, saying, quote, Truly, the defenders of that city had hearts of steel, unquote. After the Soviet brass band finished playing God Save the Queen, Stalin handed the sword to one of his generals. As he took it, the sword slid from its sheath and clanged loudly to the ground. The general quickly recovered the blade from the embassy floor and resheathed it before nervously leaving the room. The big three all had a laugh and headed to the dining room for their next meal together. The second dinner, in proper Soviet style, was a more utilitarian affair, abandoning much of the bourgeois table rituals of the previous night. Premium Russian vodka was served neat. Stalin, as host, took this opportunity to subtly berate Churchill through clever quips and underhanded compliments. Churchill, knowing all too well that the battlefields of statecraft were often dinner parties, responded to each quip in turn with his own quick-witted response. FDR sat idly by as his two allies exchanged verbal blows. Stalin, from the head of the dinner table, urged a second front against Nazi Germany, again insisting that Operation Overlord take place in Northern Europe. Churchill replied that the channel was a disagreeable body of water with unpleasant weather which could change at any moment. Stalin asked if it was too close for comfort. Churchill, flustered in his tortoiseshell glasses, took another gulp of vodka. The conversation turned to post-war plans. Stalin mused that the entire German military apparatus relied on no more than 50,000 Nazi officers. Therefore, executing those 50,000 officers would be all it would take to end German militarism for good. Churchill responded that he could not ever condone executing soldiers who were simply fighting for their country. Discussing execution so nonchalantly finally got under Churchill's skin. Churchill exclaimed, quote, I would rather be taken out to the garden here and now and be shot myself than sully my country's honor with such infamy." Unquote. President Roosevelt proposed a tongue-in-cheek alternative. He insisted they shouldn't have to execute 50,000 Nazi officers. 49,000 should do the trick. FDR's overeager son, Elliot Roosevelt, proposed a toast, raising his glass to 49,000 dead Nazis. The agitated British Prime Minister then stood up and left the room. FDR and Stalin had a long laugh. Churchill paced around the darkened room adjacent to the Soviet dining room. Within a few minutes, Stalin brought Churchill a drink and insisted that he was only joking. The pair returned to the others in the main room. The second evening closed with discussions about possible futures and the organization of the post-war order. Roosevelt shared an idea he had for quite some time the United Nations. November 30th, 1943, day three of the Tehran Conference. In the morning, the generals and advisors met to discuss details of what would end up being the D-Day invasion. 
The Big Three, meanwhile, met with the newly instated Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Each of the Allied leaders profusely thanked the Shah for providing a perfect location for their meeting. All of the flattery and praise were part of their logistical strategy that ensured Persian oil would continue to fuel the Allied war effort. The meeting with the Shah concluded with his agreement to go to war with Germany. Iran's formal declaration of war would be signed the next day. That night, the final dinner of the conference took place in the British legation. It was a special occasion, Winston Churchill's 69th birthday. And the British Bulldog was eager to host. In the break between their meeting with the Shah and dinner, Churchill fretted about every detail of his birthday banquet. Two long tables had been laid with sparkling silver cutlery, candelabra, linen napkins, and crystal glasses. The 34 guests included generals and air marshals and diplomats from each respective nation, but also FDR's son, Captain Elliot Roosevelt, and both of Churchill's children, Captain Randolph Churchill and his sister Sarah, the lone woman in the room. Churchill was desperate for a win. Defeating Hitler would require complete coordination between the three powers. This was the last throw of the dice. The evening began with champagne, Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey, and Bloody Mary cocktails. Stalin criticized the fancy silverware, claiming that this was a typical sign of British bourgeois decadence. However, he politely asked for directions on which of the cutlery was to be used with each course. FDR and Stalin, one sitting on each side of Churchill, wished the Prime Minister a happy birthday and toasted to his good health. A birthday cake with 69 candles in the shape of a V for victory was carried in and set down in front of the three leaders. Summoning up as much breath as he could, Churchill, after several attempts, blew out all of the candles to thunderous applause from the assembled guests. The first course was Persian barley and pumpkin soup. Conversations over the soup bowls bounced between small talk and diplomacy. A heated topic of debate was whether France should be treated as a liberated allied nation or because of the Vichy government, a conquered access one. Churchill was on the side of mercy, Stalin was on the side of punishment. They did agree that any Nazi collaborators would be stripped of all titles and barred from public office for life. The next course was poached salmon with beluga caviar garnish. All the while, the pouring of alcohol never ceased. This night would be their last one together, and a sense of finality pervaded the dining room. Drinks that might have otherwise been declined were thrown back with vigor. The main course consisted of roast turkey and potatoes with a seasonal vegetable medley. Despite the elaborate menu, most guests, save for Roosevelt, spent the majority of the night on their feet. All the while, white-gloved waiters floated about the room, ensuring no glass was ever empty for long. Finally, it was time for dessert. The chef had prepared what he called Persian Lantern Ice, Saffron ice cream served in bowls carved into a solid block of ice. A concealed candle within illuminated beautiful intricate carvings that adorned the ice block. A pair of waiters each carried the Persian lantern ice around the room to great applause. However, as one of the waiters headed back to serve Stalin, the heat from the candle had begun to melt the ice. The ice suddenly lurched sideways and toppled over, splattering the saffron ice cream all over Stalin's interpreter. This crisis provoked laughter around the room, and British Air Marshal Sir Charles Portal joked, quote, The German assassin just missed his target, unquote, referring to Stalin. An exhausted Roosevelt retired to his quarters just before midnight. 
But the now jovial Soviet leader was in a party mood and keen for Churchill to join him. Soon the pair were clinking their glasses for the umpteenth time, toasting each other in increasingly extravagant terms. One by one, every general, aide, and child of the Big Three stumbled out of the dining room and off to bed, until only Churchill and Stalin remained. Churchill looked to Stalin and said, Call me Winston. I call you Joe behind your back. Stalin replied, No. I would like to call you something else. My good friend. Churchill, red-faced, smiled and raised his glass for yet another toast. To the proletarian masses, Stalin raised his own glass and replied, To the conservative party. The night ended in the early morning, with the two world leaders giggling together, surrounded by countless empty bottles. December 1st, 1943, final day of the Tehran Conference. The Big Three, all nursing hangovers, slept in on their last day. Finally, in the early afternoon, the three leaders came together and made declarations and confirmed the following military conclusions from the conference. The Shah of Iran signed a formal document declaring war on Germany. Photographers took pictures, no doubt some of which you've seen before, with Churchill, FDR, and Stalin alongside each other. They were seated to conceal the poorly kept secret of the American president's disability. After the public declarations and a joint military ceremony, the leaders met together one last time to privately finalize the strategic conclusions made during the conference. Their agreements were, one, the three powers would continue to render aid to their host nation, Iran. In exchange, Persian oil would freely fuel the Allied war effort. Two, the leaders agreed that the military staff of the three powers should keep in close touch with one another in regard to the impending operations in Europe. In particular, they agreed to a cover plan to mislead the enemy about Operation Overlord. 3. Communist Yugoslavian forces would be marshaled into a full-fledged anti-fascist military operation. Allied commandos and special forces would assist the rebels with training and supplies. 4. Turkey and other Mediterranean nations would be pressured to open their ports to every one of the Allied powers. 5. Poland's borders would be adjusted after the war. The Soviet Union would gain Poland's eastern flank, while Poland would be granted German territory to the west after the war. FDR agreed to this, but insisted he could not make a public statement about it in fear of losing the Polish vote in the upcoming American election. 6. Stalin agreed to war with Japan once the Allied forces captured Berlin. 7. The republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia would be admitted to the Soviet Union so long as the citizens of the respective countries democratically chose to do so. Stalin insisted that despite the immense power of the Allies to shape a post-war world, they should not interfere in sovereign nations' elections. This would not be the case. Clandestine operations to interfere in foreign nations' elections would form the basis for the entire Cold War. 8. Operation Overlord, the largest amphibious landing in history, would take place in May of the next year. The Soviet Union would stage a simultaneous counteroffensive to retake territory in Eastern Europe and prevent Germany from diverting forces west after the D-Day invasion. After the public and private declarations between the Big Three, they all said their goodbyes. They now had a war to win. Throughout the rest of the day, the respective security details packed up the embassies and headed for the airstrip on the outskirts of the city. 
Stalin nervously boarded the plane on the runway. It had been checked and rechecked from top to bottom for subterfuge. Stalin would fly in an aircraft just two times in his entire life, once to the Tehran Conference and once again from the Tehran Conference. As a Secret Service agent wheeled FDR onto his own aircraft leaving Tehran, the old president looked to him and said, My, what good friends we have now. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, with story editing by Thomas Harlander. Here's some of the many facts that did not make the episode. After the Willie D's near miss with the torpedo, there were several demotions of the crew on board. The chief torpedo officer, whose failure to remove the torpedo primer had enabled it to fire at the Iowa, was later sentenced to hard labor, though President Roosevelt intervened in his case, insisting that it was merely an accident. As a result of this friendly fire incident, rumors spread that the crew of the Willie D were conservative Republicans who were gunning for FDR due to his New Deal policies. Ships would routinely greet the destroyer with the hail, Don't shoot! We're Republicans! The Willie D was given a new assignment, patrolling Alaska's Aleutian Islands in the middle of winter. Contrary to popular belief, uh, Roosevelt did not have polio. He had a rarer, late-onset lower body paralysis called Guillain-Barre syndrome. But he took it as his personal responsibility to help raise funds to combat polio. He helped create the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. 17 years later, with funding from FDR's organization, a man named Jonas Salk created the first-ever polio vaccine. Adjusted for inflation, the patent was worth well over $7 billion. He refused to patent the vaccine, saying that doing so would be like patenting the sun. Within two decades, polio was almost entirely eliminated from the United States. FDR died of a stroke on April 12, 1945. Since the stroke was almost assuredly stress-related, according to the U.S. military, FDR remains the only sitting U.S. president to become an official casualty of war. If you like this show and want to get more of it, there are Historium bonus episodes on Patreon. Here is a sneak peek at an older bonus episode about the Baby Ruth candy bar and its strange connection to the culmination of the Second World War. The Curtis Candy Company's factories around Chicago began pumping out millions of Baby Ruth candy bars to be sent out to local retailers. Now, Otto needed to get the word out, and one day... After gazing up into the sky, he had just the right man for the job. That episode and every other bonus episode can be yours for just five bucks. The link to my bonus episodes is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.